You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke and experience true discipleship. Today's scripture is from Matthew 8, 1 through 17. When He came down from the mountain, great crowds followed Him. And behold, a leper came to Him and knelt before Him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Peace be with you. Let me pray with pray for us before we we jump into the text. Father, we come to you this morning. We just sang that you are good. You are so good to us. Sometimes it's it's easy for us to lose sight of your goodness. Sometimes when we are in the valley, it's easy to forget or to miss your hand and your guidance and your protection of us. So Lord, I pray this morning as we open your word, Trusting your spirit, he is at work in our midst that we would get a clearer and truer, better picture of you as you really are. Father, I pray for people who are visiting this morning, people who haven't been in church in a long time or maybe been in church ever. Lord, I pray that through your word, through the songs we sing and through everything, they might understand that because of what Jesus has done for us, the pressure is off. And that Christianity is not about how we perform, Father. It's not about how great we get our lives together. It's about the grace you've shown us through your Son. I pray for people who are in valleys of darkness and despair, people who are just feel spiritually numb, that your word and the beauty of your Son that we see in this, this text would break through and awaken in them a renewed desire, a renewed longing to know you. Pray for all of us, Lord, that as we come to your word, that we would be changed by it. 
It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, today we celebrate our 10-year anniversary as a church. My wife and I, we've been a part of Sojourn East for eight years, and about seven years ago, so about a year after uh, we took the role, I took the role here, uh, a member at East approached me kind of unexpectedly with an offer. They had a connection at Disney World, and they wanted to bless our family with basically a free trip, which I was like, awesome, you know, this is great. It's like the joys of being a pastor. You work one day a week, air condition. That's a pastor joke. Uh, <laughs> so we're like, this is great. And so they're like, we'll plan it. You don't have to worry about it. Uh, and everything was going great. The only problem was the, the plans that they put together, they put together pretty quickly. And our flight was scheduled to leave early on a Sunday afternoon, like 1.30. And I'm usually pretty busy on Sundays. And I think it was the week after Easter. And so tried to find someone to fill in. We decided, Kevin, you just preach. And if you, you preach, do communion, and then you can, like, bolt. And, you know, if the stars align, you should be able to make your flight. And so that Sunday comes. Everything's going as planned. I finished my sermon. It was short, so everyone was happy. Did communion. And then, like, I literally grabbed my bag and kind of snuck out the back door, put my sunglasses on, like, Florida, here we come. And I didn't notice that two people whom I never had seen before, visitors, first-time visitors, walked out right behind me. And the man, I assume he was the husband, he said, ah, oh, so is this how it goes? You just preach your sermon, and then it's like, you're out of here. Elvis has left the building. He's kind of joking, but not kind of, too, at the same time. And so in my mind, I was like, I'll just explain it. So I was like, no, 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 you got it wrong. I've just got to catch a flight because I'm going to Disney World. Uh, <laughs> for some reason, that explanation didn't arouse the kind of sympathy that I thought it would from him. And he muttered something under his breath, and I thought, that guy is never coming back to our church. Uh, but I'm still going to go to Disney. Um, and in a sense, you know, like I wish the guy would have maybe listened a little more, been gracious, uh, but I get it. Like we've all seen people who are impressive from a stage, but then you get near, you draw near to them, and you're like, wait, I don't think I like this person. I think a lot of times for, it happens for, for many of us that when we watch someone preach or teach or whatever, there's a part of us that's wondering, all right, I hear what they're saying, but are they the real deal? Can I actually trust them? Well, this morning we're back in Matthew's gospel, picking it up at a very important transition in the gospel. See, at the beginning of chapter 5, Jesus goes up on a mountain and he teaches. He gives the greatest sermon in the history of the world, the Sermon on the Mount. And then at chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 1, where we're starting today, Jesus comes back down from the mountain and Matthew takes the focus off of Jesus' words and puts it on his works. We've heard what Jesus says, but Matthew now wants to highlight what Jesus does. And so over the next two chapters, Matthew gives us nine different accounts of miracles Jesus performed. And we're going to look at the first three of those today, but what I want to do is use those first three miracles as kind of a window through which we can understand all of the miracles of Jesus, because the miracles of Jesus, understanding the miracles are it's an essential part of understanding who Jesus is and why he came and what he is doing in the world. Every, every single miracle teaches us about him. 
And so we're going to look at the first three, and we're going to look at these three under three headings. Uh, I want to show you, number one, that Jesus' miracles demonstrate his authority. Number two, they display his kingdom. And then number three, rightly understood, they should embolden us to draw near to God. Because through the miracles, we get a glimpse of God's heart. But we're going to start talking about authority, the miracles of Jesus. One of the things that they do is they demonstrate his authority. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew tells us, Jesus finishes the sermon, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. So there was something so different, so utterly unique about Jesus' teachings that the crowds were just absolutely amazed by him. And Matthew tells us what that thing was. It says, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And if you were here during the Sermon on the Mount, you, you saw, we saw together that time and time again, Jesus will say something like, you have heard it said, but I say to you, everyone else has taught you this, but I've come and this is the real meaning. I mean, he makes these big, bold claims. He ends the Sermon on the Mount telling this story. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, they will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Remember, this is the last words of the sermon. And the rain and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Now, it would be one thing if Jesus said, everyone who hears the word of God, everyone who hears the Torah. But Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine. That's a big claim. That's, that's a bold claim. And that's what got the religious folks so angry with Jesus. Caused them to ask, who does this guy think he is? How can he go around and say these sorts of things? And so when Jesus comes down from the mountain, what he does is he unleashes his power across the land. And he performs miracle after miracle after miracle. He, he heals people of diseases and disabilities. He encounters a leper and heals them. Someone who is paralyzed heals them. The blind heals them. But it's not just diseases. Then he and his disciples were looking at this next week. They're on a boat and a storm comes. And he exercises authority over the weather. He basically says, knock it off. They get to the other side. And there are these two men who are possessed by demons. And they're terrifying and terrorizing the land. And with a word, Jesus casts the demons out. He has authority over demons. And so again and again and again, we see his authority until we get to the end of chapter 9. And Jesus is sitting next to the bed of a little girl who died. And he says, wake up, honey. And she rises from the dead. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus, he's not just a miracle worker. And it's wrong to look at the miracles he performed and to kind of take away, well, Jesus, he did a lot of miracles. That he did. But the point of the miracles is his authority. That wherever Jesus goes, when he encounters things that are not the way they should be, he speaks a word. We see this in verse 5 with the centurion who asked Jesus to heal one of his servants who's paralyzed and suffering terribly. And Jesus responds, in essence, by saying, take me to him, I'll heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. 
but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me and I say to one go and he goes and to another come and he comes and to my servant do this and he doesn't. And so the centurion is telling Jesus basically, listen, I have a number of soldiers under my authority. They're, they're in, under my sphere, in my sphere of authority, and, and my word is law for them. What I say goes. I tell them to jump. They say, how high? I understand authority, but then he also implies, I also know who you are, and I know your authority, and all you have to do is say the word, and my servant, who is miles away, will be healed. And we read in verse 10, something you do not read in the Gospels anyplace else. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. <laughs> Jesus, he loves humanity, came to save humanity. He's not all that impressed with humanity throughout much of the Gospels, but here he looks at this man and he marvels. His jaw's on the floor. He says, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus looks at this man and says, you get it. You know I'm not just some kind of shaman or medicine man who has to come and, you know, apply oils or do certain rituals or say certain things over people to heal them. You know I can just snap my fingers and it's done because you understand my authority. See, Jesus connects and he shows us that understanding his authority and faith in him they're inseparable. And I can tell you as a pastor, throughout the years, I've encountered countless people in my office, in my living room, after a service on Sunday, I've encountered countless people who want Jesus to do a powerful work in their life. Countless people who are hoping and praying that God might do something that seems impossible, like heal their marriage, or set them free from an addiction, or an unhealthy pattern, or change their life circumstances. I encounter a lot of people who really want to experience the power of God in their life, but at the same time, I encounter a lot of people who are very resistant to the thought of submitting themselves to his authority. Don't you see, though? His power is inextricably tied to his authority. The reason Jesus has power is because he has authority. So if you're here and you're exploring Christianity, I cannot overstate the work that Jesus can do in your life. Like there is no one greater and no one better. And he loves you, and he wants to redeem you and change your life. But it begins not with him just doing a work in your life, but with you recognizing he is the author of all. And he has authority over all. And with every single miracle, that's what he's displaying for us. He's demonstrating. So they're demonstrations of authority, the miracles are, but they're also, through the miracles, Jesus puts his kingdom on display. And here's what I mean. If all Jesus wanted to do was prove his authority, he could have done any number of supernatural acts. If all Jesus wanted to do was to prove that he was God and everyone should bow down and worship him. He could have levitated, <laughs> floated places. Like he could have struck all of the Pharisees mute so that they couldn't teach anymore and he could have strolled in. Well, I'll teach. 
He could have given his disciples superpowers, you know, like they'd be X-Men or Marvel and shown the world. He could have thrown himself off the temple and had angels carry him to the ground. But Jesus refuses to do those kinds of miracles. Instead, the miracles Jesus does are things like feeding the hungry, healing people who are suffering from leprosy or paralysis, restoring men who've kind of lost the essence of who they are through demon possession. See, the miracles of Jesus, they are never just simply naked displays of power. I am God. Look at my authority. No, the miracles of Jesus, every single one of them, was an assault on the forces of decay and destruction and death that sin unleashed in our world. Every single miracle Jesus is attacking, addressing, confronting some manifestation of sin, suffering, or evil. People aren't supposed to be blind. People aren't supposed to be deaf. People aren't supposed to be paralyzed. People aren't supposed to go hungry. People aren't supposed to die. People aren't even supposed to get fevers. That's not how God created the world. All of those things are the result of living in a world that's fallen and that's wrecked by sin. So every miracle Jesus does, they're all him and in a sense rescuing people from the effects of sin and also restoring them, even if it's just temporarily, restoring them to the way, them or the situation to the way things ought to be. If you're tracking with me, then you'll understand what I mean when I say the miracles of Jesus, they're actually not supernatural. They're the most natural thing in the world. I love this quote uh, from an author. He says, when Jesus expels demons and heals the sick, he is driving out of creation the powers of destruction and is healing and restoring created beings who are hurt and sick. The lordship of God to which the healings witness restores sick creation to health. Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in, in a natural world, they're the only truly natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. Here's what he's saying. He's saying Jesus, when he does miracles, he's not bending the fabric of reality. He's actually mending it. He's putting it back together. He's pointing us back to what life was like before the fall. And he's also pointing us forward to what life will be like when his kingdom comes and his will is done fully on this earth as it already is in heaven. Every miracle, Jesus is showing us his kingdom, both in what he does, but also in who he does it for. I mentioned that Matthew gives us nine miracle accounts in these two chapters. We know that Jesus healed more than nine people, though. Jesus healed hundreds if not thousands. I mean, John ends his gospel and says, if every deed Jesus did were written down, the world couldn't hold all the books that would have to be written. So Jesus has done thousands of miracles and acts, but Matthew gives us nine. And these nine, he selected for a reason. They're, it's a curated list that Matthew's highlighting for us. And he's trying to teach us something with each of these and even the way he structures them. And it, it's easy for us to miss because we live in such a radically different culture. But for Matthew's original readers, no one would miss the fact that the first three people Jesus heal, 
they're all religious outsiders in one way or another. The first three people that Jesus heals, not one of them could worship in the innermost part of the temple. And so it starts with the leper. And if you know anything about lepers or leprosy, or if you've been around church, you've heard. But lepers, in that day, they were considered unclean before God. And they were viewed, most people viewed them as being under a curse from God. They were viewed as a danger from the community or for the community. And so by law, they had to dishevel their hair. They had to wear torn clothing so that on the outside, they would look like the disease that was eating away at them on the inside. When they encountered others, they had to cry out, unclean, unclean. They had to cover the lower half of their faces. They were the quintessential untouchables. They were dead men walking. Most people viewed them as a lost cause. And that's why when the leper comes to Jesus, he doesn't say, Lord, if you can, make me clean. He says in verse 2, Lord, if you will. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Because he's lived a life of total isolation, and he's questioning now not Jesus' ability, but his willingness. Would you be willing to heal someone like me? I'm as unclean as you get the side of eternity. Jesus heals him. The next person he heals is the centurion's servant who's a Gentile. Jews and Gentiles didn't get along. Jews viewed Gentiles as being very unclean and filthy, both by the foods they ate, the the lives they led. And so no self-respecting Jew would ever consider stepping foot into the home of a Gentile, lest they be defiled. And so when this centurion says, Jesus, will you heal my servant? What's his response? He says, sure, I'll come on over. And the centurion says, no, people aren't, that's, that's a little too progressive. People are going to be ready for you as a Jew coming into my house. So just, just heal him from afar. And then the third person Jesus heals is Peter's mother-in-law. Now women, unlike the first two, they weren't considered unclean, although a fever might make you unclean. But women were absolutely considered second-class citizens. One of the prayers that devout Jewish men prayed in that day every morning, they would get up in the morning and they would say, thank you, God, that I was not born a woman. And yet Jesus comes into Peter's house and sees his mother-in-law suffering and he reaches out his hand and he heals her. The first miracles that Matthew gives us, they were all for religious outsiders. And when I say outsiders, I'm not just speaking metaphorically. If you know anything about the temple, the temple had these rings to it that, you know, depending on who you were and how clean you were and all sorts of things, you could get further and further in. If you think of it like our building, which is not a temple, the lepers aren't even allowed in the city limits. Lepers were forbidden from entering any walled city, so they couldn't even get near the temple. Gentiles, they were allowed in the parking lot. They were allowed on the porch of the temple. You could open up the doors and they could kind of listen in. Women, they were allowed, but they were allowed in like a separate kind of half, maybe like the atrium here. And Jesus comes and he starts healing people. And who does he heal? Not the people who would be in the center where the presence of God, people understood the presence of God dwelt in a unique way. Instead, Jesus goes out and he knocks down a wall and he starts healing women. Then he knocks down another wall and starts healing Gentiles. And then he knocks down the city wall. 
and he starts healing lepers. And healing these outsiders, Jesus is just tearing down walls. And he's revealing to us the kinds of people who are going to be a part of his kingdom. I mean, this is the real warning he gives after the centurion demonstrates such faith and he talks about weeping and gnashing of teeth. The essence of what Jesus is saying there is there are certain people that think that they're in because of, you know, their religiosity, whatever. They're going to find themselves on the outside. And there's going to be all these other people that you would never expect. These people who are spiritually unclean or ritually defiled. And they're going to be in my kingdom. My kingdom, it's not for a select group. My kingdom goes out to everyone. See, with his miracles, Jesus displays his kingdom agenda, both in what he does and who he does it for. He's come to heal, to rescue, to restore. And he's come to do that for any and everyone. And as a quick point of application, I would say if that was Jesus' agenda, that should be our agenda too. If that was what Jesus was passionate about, then we, as his body on this earth, should be passionate about those things too. In John 14, Jesus tells his disciples, if you believe in me, you will do the works that I do and even greater works. Now, I don't think that Jesus meant we were going to do greater miracles than he did. Because even in the book of Acts, we see some miracles in the book of Acts, but not nearly the same frequency or level that we see in the Gospels. And so I don't think Jesus is saying, if you believe in me and you just have enough faith, you're going to be able to heal anyone with a word. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what Jesus is saying when he's saying to his disciples and in turn all of us, is he's saying, one billion people who share my agenda will do even greater works than I've done. B.B. You know, Warfield, he's an old theologian from Princeton, and I'm paraphrasing him here, but he said for the three years of Jesus' ministry, Palestine had no sickness, had no death, had no demonic oppression. It was a healed land. He said that might be a bit of an exaggeration, but not much of one when you hear how many people Jesus healed. That was his passion on this earth, and he's pointing forward to what he's, where he's taking history. And if that was his agenda, I don't know how that cannot be our agenda as well. And, you know, there's history in the American church. There's always been a, you know, argument. Is it about what we preach, or is it about what we do? Is it about, you know, helping the poor? Is it about preaching the gospel? And in Jesus we see, of course, it's all of those things. Well, which one's more important? They're all important because Jesus did them all. And I think one of the things that really hurts our credibility is that we claim to have this God of love who cares, and yet when he sends us, oftentimes we resist. But Jesus, he displays his kingdom with his miracles. He gives us his kingdom agenda, and he invites us to make that our agenda. So number one, he demonstrates his authority. Number two, puts his kingdom on display. And then number three, Jesus' miracles, they should embolden us to draw near because they reveal God's heart. They reveal Jesus' heart to us. It's really interesting in verses one and two because in verse one we read, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. But then in verse two we read, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him. 
Now, the reason this is fascinating is because lepers and crowds don't go together. Ordinary, normal people, healthy people would want nothing to do with a leper. They wouldn't want to risk getting sick and they wouldn't want to risk getting spiritually defiled by them because if they came into contact, got too close, they would have to go through all sorts of rituals before they'd be able to worship again. And so ordinary people kept their distance and lepers knew they weren't even allowed around crowds. And so I just can't help but imagine what, how did this take place? Because there's no way he was just cruising with the crowds the whole time. So I imagine Jesus is healing a bunch of people. There's a massive crowd. And on the horizon, there's a guy, and a couple people notice him, and they see him getting closer, and they see his messed up hair and his torn clothing, and he's walking kind of funny. And they're like, that looks like a leper. And they, they hear in the distance him screaming, unclean, unclean. <laughs> and he's getting closer, and they're looking at each other. What's he doing? He's got to stop at some point. No, he's just going to keep coming. And you can imagine the crowds parting like the Red Sea as this guy got closer. And then he finally gets down before Jesus, falls before him. And he just says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And we're told in verse 3, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Now, we know from the next miracle that Jesus doesn't have to touch to heal. He can heal from downtown. He can heal, like, in different zip codes if he wants. And yet this man who'd not been touched for years since he got his diagnosis, this man that everyone saw as defiled and unclean, Jesus extends his hand and touches him. And, you know, if if Jesus had stepped back 10 paces, and just spoke a healing over him, this would have been a different miracle. It still would have been a miracle, but it would have been a different miracle. Instead, Jesus walks up, reaches out, touches him. Some, some translations will say he grabs him, grabs his head or hugs him, embraces him, and says, I will, be clean. And because we live in such different time, it's so hard to comprehend how jarring the scene would have been for everyone. For the crowds, when they saw Jesus reach out and touch this leprous man, like they would have recoiled in disgust. Like parents of little kids, your kids ever put things in their mouth that you're like, oh, don't do that. That's the crowds recoiling in disgust. The leper probably recoiled a little when Jesus touched him, because he knows that this is a major faux pas that's happening. This is breaking a law from God. The only person who doesn't recoil is Jesus. You see, there are actually two miracles happening here. The first miracle is that the leper is healed, but there's another miracle. What's supposed to happen when an unclean person, or when a clean person touches someone who's unclean? What's supposed to happen? The clean person becomes defiled, right? You touch them, the disease spreads. That's what's contagious. What we see here, though, is Jesus touches the man with leprosy, and he doesn't get the disease. Instead, the leper gets Jesus' wholeness 
and his healing. Jesus reaches out his hand and demonstrates an even greater miracle than just being healed from a disease. He reveals that he's able to draw near to people who are unclean and defiled, and he's not going to be defiled by that. He's the only man who could do this. This is what we see even with Peter's mother-in-law. Like Jewish men would never touch a woman that wasn't their wife. They wouldn't touch someone with a fever. But he's got no problem strolling up and touching her. He's not worried about being made unclean or defiled. And you start thinking about this. So this reveals his heart, that he's not, he's not a really powerful person who's like, fine, I'll heal the next person. Like, I'll do 10 today, but that's it. And he's not sitting there saying, well, give me your resume and put some money in the basket. And No, he's seeing people that everyone else had pushed to the very margins of society. And he's touching people who haven't been touched in a very long time. He's drawing near to people who've been isolated. And I think when we read about how the, the reports of Jesus spread, I don't think the reports were just, this guy is crazy. He does all of these fantastic miracles. I mean, the reports that are going to spread are the lepers who came and said, yeah, I know, I used to have it, and I don't. But you want to know what's crazy? This is how he healed me. He touched me. He fed me. He cast the demons out of me. I think the reason Jesus was overwhelmed by the crowds was not just because he, he got the power to heal, but because he wanted to heal. And he wanted to make people whole. And so every broken person in Palestine made their way to see him. Now, what word is, that, is there in that for us? Well, I want you to think about the last time you sinned in like a big way. Like the big time sin um, where you, you knowingly went against God's word. You knowingly went against your own conscience. You hurt other people. Maybe you hurt yourself but you dishonored God. Does anyone have a moment like that they can think of? So you have this moment, and think of how you felt in that moment. Maybe you felt some conviction. A lot of times we feel more than that, though. We feel shame or fear. Often what happens in those moments is we feel unclean. And... Often the way we respond in those moments, instead of going to God in prayer, opening his word, coming to church, taking part in the table, oftentimes the way we respond is we, we actually pull back from prayer, we pull back from the word, we pull back from other people. Because we, we have this sense of being unclean or being defiled. Maybe we think God's ashamed of us and he doesn't want anything to do with us. Maybe, maybe we think he can't be near us because we've sinned and we're defiled. How many of you have, have ever heard something along the lines of a holy God will not and can, cannot tolerate sin in his presence? God cannot tolerate sin in his presence. I just don't think that's true. <laughs> because Jesus is surrounded by sinful people all the time. I, I think it's partially true, but I think the partial truth, that's why Jesus came. 
Jesus came to reconcile us to God. And so he shared his life with sinful people, and he's never threatened by it. Jesus is the most non-anxious person in history. (laughs) They're coming at him like all these unclean people, and he's not like, oh, no. He's just like, come here, I'll heal you. So if he's not threatened by their uncleanness, what makes you think he's going to be threatened by your uncleanness, you coming to him when you feel unclean or defiled? See, these miracles, they show us his authority, they show us his kingdom and his power, but even more than that, they show us his heart. They show us why he came. And Matthew sums it up in verse 17 when he quotes from Isaiah 53, which is reads, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. This is the whole reason Jesus came. He's not stressed out by your sin. He's not afraid of being defiled by you. He's offering you to come to him. And he'll reach out his hand, and it's a healing touch, and it's a cleansing touch. Now, we started talking about authority, and as a general rule, we as a people don't like authority. We don't like it when people tell us what to do. And some of this, a lot of this is because of sin, Like the essence of sin was basically, God, don't tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. And so some of our our resistance to authority is born out of our sin, but some of it's born out of the sins of other people. If you've had people misuse authority in your life, I know people, people very dear to me, that have lived under kind of tyrannical relationships or in a tyrannical job. And once they get set free from that authority, if they ever do, they never want to trust authority again. Like, no one's ever going to tell me how to live again. Well, Jesus, recognizing his authority, it's essential to the Christian life. But you can trust him. And the reason you can trust him is look what he did with his authority. He healed, he brought wholeness, and he drew near to people who were hurting. He never used it for his own personal gain. He actually gave up everything so that he might redeem and save us. So if you're here and you're exploring Christianity, I want you to know that Jesus is so very good and he has moved heaven and earth to bring you into the family of God, but you do have to respond in faith. It will not happen automatically, but he's inviting you as you are. You don't have to clean anything up. You don't have to put on a mask. You don't have to do anything that you might think you have to do. All you have to do is come to him like this leper, kneel before him and cry out and he'll respond. If you're here and you're a Christian, as we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded of the healing we've received. The night before his crucifixion, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body that's broken for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the covenant that's poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When we gather, we're reminded that what enables us to draw near with boldness and confidence before the throne of God, it's not our works, it's not our morality, it's not how holy we are, 
What enables us to draw near is the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ in our place. And so if you're a Christian, I encourage you to come and to eat and to drink, to celebrate what Christ has done for you. If you have sins that you've been holding back from him, this is a great time to lay them down before him. If you need healing and freedom from addictions, negative stuff going on in your life or relationships, a great place to start is when you come to the table saying, you've given your life for me. Will you help me now? I encourage you to seek his face. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of Matthew's gospel, which show us your heart, the heart of your son. Father, I pray for our church. I pray that you would, you would make us people who are passionate about your kingdom and who share your kingdom agenda. I pray that you would, you would stir in us a deeper awareness of your authority. But before any of that, Lord, I pray that you would continue to reveal to us who you really are, the confidence we can have in the death of Jesus Christ in our place, and that we might live with greater freedom and boldness, which will lead to a greater faithfulness. Lord, continue to reveal yourself to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.